This morning I'm talking to Father Peter McVerry, a very well-known social activist, a campaigner against homelessness, a member of the Society of Jesus, otherwise known as the Jesuits, so a Catholic priest. He's going to be kicking off the series of Advent talks that will be starting in Killaloo Cathedral this evening. So you're very welcome, Peter McVerry. Thank you very much indeed. <clears throat> so we know a bit about you from what we see and hear on radio and TV and, of course, newspapers. But what is the Peter McVerry story, Peter? Do tell us about your early life and what led you to what you're involved Well, I grew up in, uh, in Newry, County Down. <clears throat> we, I was very fortunate. We had a, a very caring family. My father was a doctor, so we were financially very comfortable. We had a nice house. Uh, he sent me to a fee-paying school, Jesuit fee-paying school. So life was very good to me uh, growing up. Then when I was in school, I was deciding what I wanted to do. Now my father, as I say, was a doctor. And in those days, he didn't have a practice. He didn't have an assistant or a partner to help him. So he was on duty seven nights a week, uh, 365 days of the year. And I would often hear the phone going in the middle of the night my father would get up and he'd go out to see his patients sometimes the phone would go twice in the middle of the night and i never heard him complain so i think i got a sense of service from my father my mother was a welsh protestant who converted to catholicism in order to marry my father because back in those days if a catholic married a protestant they were destined to go to hell for all eternity so to avoid my father facing that fate my mother became my Catholic and, like many converts, became more Catholic than the Catholics themselves. <laughs> so it was a, a family rosary every night, Mass, of course, on Sunday. <clears throat> so I think I got a sense of faith from my mother. So when I was thinking, what am I going to do in my life? I think I wanted to be of service to others within a faith context. And since I was in a Jesuit school, I said, sure, I'll give the Jesuits a try, see what happens. So I applied to join the Jesuits straight from school. They wouldn't take you now straight from school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but they did take me. Uh, and I must say, I've never looked back. Uh, I've never, uh, it's been a wonderful, I've had a wonderful life. Uh, so it's, uh, that's how I ended up in the Jesuits. And I got into this work of homelessness quite by accident. Oh yeah. I was, <clears throat> Uh, the Jesuits in the 1970s, the whole faith and just the justice dimension of the faith was, was very strong at the, in those decades, uh, coming mainly from South America, liberation theology. So the Jesuits in Ireland, we weren't doing much in, in the area of justice. We were running fee-paying schools and fee-paying uh, retreat houses. So the Jesuits said, oh, look, we'd better do something about this justice thing. So we got from Dublin City Council, we got a flat in the most deprived area of the north inner city. Uh, and three of us moved in. Uh, and I, I volunteered to move in, said to give it a try, see what happened. <laughs> and uh, I spent six years in the inner city before they demolished all the buildings because the housing was so awful. So I spent six years there and I left my heart there and I really fell in love with the people. Now these were people who were written off by society. They were people who were free, who were living on the in, in absolute poverty, living in appalling housing with very little prospect of ever getting a job. <clears throat> and so society 
had no time for them. I found them to be most wonderful people you could meet, uh, and I fell in love with with that place. Uh, and I still have many friends who I, I got to know in the in the inner city at that time. So the issue wasn't homelessness. The issue then was young people leaving school early. Yes. Young people saw no prospect of ever getting a job. Mm -hmm. And so they said, what's the point in staying on in school? So the issue that hit us very quickly was young people leaving school early. They were leaving school at the very latest by the age of 12, hanging around the streets all day long. Parents, mostly unemployed, couldn't give them any money. So what were they doing? A little bit of robbing. And by the time they got to 16 and 17, they were doing an awful lot of robbing and they were going to jail. So that was the issue. So we opened a youth club for all the young people in the area. We opened a craft centre. They could make lovely crafts. We were able to, they were able to sell them, make a few bob. We were able to employ some of the young people making the crafts. <clears throat> and uh, we would sell them to the shops in town to pay their wages. Uh, and I did that for a couple of years. And then I came across a kid sleeping on the street, nine years of age. So I said, look, we have a youth club for the young people of the area. We have a craft centre. We have employment schemes. Let's get a house and open a little hostel. So we did. Got a house. Took in six boys up to the age of 16. Why boys? There were no girls on the streets in the 1970s. That only came later. So we took in six boys. I said, well, I'll run this for a couple of years. Then I'll go off and I'll do something else. So I ran that for a couple of years. Then the young people were leaving that at 16, 16 and a half because they were growing out of it. And they were going back on the streets. So I said, look, we better open a hostel for the over 16s. So I asked Dublin City Council for a premises and to my surprise and to their regret ever since, they gave me a flat in the old flats in Ballymun. And so we opened that as a hostel. And the numbers grew and grew and grew. We often had 15, 16 young people, uh, 16, 17, 18 year olds in living in a three bedroom flat. So we had to get another house to take the overflow. <clears throat> then the drum. These old kids that were just like abandoned kind of thing? They're kids who came from very dysfunctional oh. homes. Mm -hmm. uh, our kids who had been placed in one of the childcare institutions which as we now know were pretty awful <laughs> and they experienced a lot of uh, abuse in that in those uh, in those and the attitude when I opened our first hostel I went to the government and asked them would they give me money and they said no way the uh, they said they don't see the need for this they don't see the point of it uh, their attitude was that these kids who kept running away were little brats because uh, there wasn't the same understanding then of the, uh, the the dysfunctionality that exists in homes where there's a, maybe a lot of abuse or a lot of violence and there's certainly uh, no understanding of the abuse that was taking place in the children's institutions. So they were just considered bad kids and the response was to uh, uh, call the guard, they pick them up, bring them back to the institution or bring them back home. And so I was seen as part of the problem, not part of the solution because I was giving these kids a place to live. I was feeding them properly, buying them clothes, bringing them on holidays. And the attitude was, should they all be leaving home <laughs> if we were to fund places like that? Uh, so they didn't want to know. Uh, so we opened, it just, it, the whole thing just spread. We, as I say, we had to get, uh, we had to open a second hostel for the over 16s. Then the drug problem hit Dublin. And we had 14, 15 year olds coming to us injecting heroin. Mm -hmm. So we had to open a detox center. Mm -hmm. Then we had to open a drug free hostel for the young people who had finished the detox. 
Then the Child Care Act came in and we had to separate out the under-18s from the over-18s, so we had to open another hostel. So it just went on and on like that. There was no big plan. It just uh, it just happened. I said, sure, I'll give it another year and see what happens. And 40, 40 years, or more than 40 years later, I look back and say, oh God, it's wonderful that I did uh, give it another year for all those years. But anyway, from that night... You were night, always responding to needs, and you're, it was yeah. all driven by needs. It was all driven by needs. Yeah, it, it, grew, it, it grew organically. Mm. There was nobody at the top saying, with a major plan, is this is what we should provide. Just went from year to year. What's the next need we need to 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 uh, to address? Uh, and how and was so it sustained, Peter, at that time, funding wise. How did you manage? Uh, well, eventually we got funding for that first hostel, but only because the the inner city was beginning to explode, uh, yeah. and the kids were running wild. And the government response was to open a prison up in Lockenhouse House in County Cavan for these 12 to 16 year old kids from the inner city. And there was an outcry from all the childcare agencies. And so my proposal to open this hostel was sitting on the minister's uh, desk. And he jumped at it, not because he saw the need, not because he wanted to, but it was a method of diverting the criticism that he was getting. <laughs> that his only response to deprived inner city kids is to lock them up 200 miles away. Uh, so eventually we got the funding for that. <clears throat> the other hostels, the over 16 hostel, no, we had to beg, borrow and uh, fundraise. Uh, so it was it was a struggle. We, we lived from, from, uh, from hand to mouth. We didn't have the money to employ staff. Uh, in that first hostel with six boys up to 16, there were only two of us, two staff. Now they still have six boys and they have 10 staff and a manager. <laughs> we didn't have the money to employ people. Uh, we didn't have the money in the over 16s to employ anybody. So for a long time, uh, I'd have to leave the homeless people there on their own during the day when I went off to do things, come back in the evening and hope the place was still there. <laughs> uh, so we, we just went from we just lived from uh, from from hand to mouth in those days. So from that nine year old kid, we now have twenty five hostels all over Dublin and Kildare. We've almost a thousand homeless people uh, living in the hostels every night. We have about six hundred apartments all around the country. We have some in Limerick and Cork and Clare and Kerry and as well. We have about six hundred apartments where we can give a homeless person the key of the door and say, "This is yours for the rest of your life. You never ever have to be homeless again." <clears throat> we have five uh, drug and alcohol treatment centres. Uh, we have a beautiful drop-in centre in the city centre of Dublin, and we actually run two small schools. Two small schools, only about 40 pupils. They're pupils who have either been expelled from mainstream education or have simply left. And the idea of that is that many of the homeless people we deal with have left school early. And we are hoping by keeping these young people in school, and it's very successful, 95% of them stay on, uh, we're hoping to prevent some of them anyway becoming homeless adults in the, in, in the future. So that all happened as I say, by accident, <laughs> but a very fortunate accident. And it could have collapsed any time. I mean, there were loads of times when the whole thing could have collapsed, either for lack of money or uh, lack of premises, uh, or maybe there were times I felt this is getting too big, I can't manage this, I could have walked away. But somehow Providence was there and uh, I stuck at it, thank God. And uh, yeah, I've had the most most extraordinary and wonderful life 
working with homeless people has been a privilege. I've learned so much from homeless people. Uh, as I often say, I have got more from homeless people than I have given to them because they have challenged me in so many ways uh, and helped me to see things in, in a very different light. So one of the things, I mean, I grew up in a good home, as I say, good education, went to third level. And I thought growing up in Ireland was a wonderful place. To, Ireland was a wonderful place to grow up in until I started meeting these homeless kids. They were coming from abusive homes. They were not interested in education because if you can't be interested in education if you're struggling with, with, with problems at home. Uh, <clears throat> and so I came to realise for some people Ireland is an awful place to grow up in. Uh, and so it challenged me uh, and it uh, yeah, made me angry. Made me angry enough to want to change things. Uh, and is that anger still fueling you? I always say if I lose my anger I'll be no use to homeless people you know we're often afraid of anger Yes, indeed. we're afraid because it can explode destructively but anger is actually a very positive emotion anger and love go together you cannot love somebody who is suffering unnecessarily without being angry at what's causing the suffering and so I see that we have failed homeless people as a, as a state uh, we have uh, we have marginalised them and kept them on the margins, uh, and, and that makes me very very angry. Just on a very sort of day to day basis, when you become aware of the needs of a homeless person, person, how does a person sort of arrive into a Peter McFerry setting, whatever it might be, and what happens to them when they come? They arrive often through our drop-in centre. That's often the first port of call. You know, the homeless community in Dublin, it, it, communication goes around. <laughs> they, uh, they, they all talk to one another. So most homeless people would know me in Dublin and they would know of our drop-in centre. And so if they're stuck for accommodation or something else, yeah, they'll go up to the drop-in centre and that's the first port of call. They might be looking for accommodation. As I say, we have 25 hostels. We uh, very often can provide them with accommodation. Uh, and would that be hostel. sort of temporary accommodation in the hostel for a while until they no, see where they're going? Uh, but no, it's, it's, it's as long as they want it. Oh, it basically, what we call a six-month bed. Uh, but that came from years ago when you could get you could get your own independent private rented accommodation very easily. So the idea of the six months bed was during that six months you could find your own accommodation and you could move out. Now you can't get accommodation. It's almost impossible. So the six month bed has become a two or three year bed uh, instead. So we can give them accommodation. They might want drug treatment. We can assess them for their suitability for treatment. Uh, we have, as I say, five, um, uh, four residential and one day program for uh, for treating drugs and alcohol. So we can channel them into one of our detox uh, services. Then when they've finished the uh, drug treatment, we have what we call recovery houses. So they are drug-free houses where they can live for further maybe six months in a drug-free supported and supervised environment <clears throat> and if they continue to remain drug-free then we will help them get their own accommodation. And of course that's great because it reinforces an environment where you know it's helping them to I suppose escape the addiction. Yeah deal with the addiction. two things you need to escape the addiction you need a safe place to live mm -hmm. uh, and you need something to do during the day. 
sure. And many people with an addiction come from very deprived areas where drugs are <laughs> in their face all day long, and it's not it's not feasible to go back to that if you want to stay drug free uh, and they need something to do during the day so we would have day programs or we would encourage them to engage in other day programs uh, or to look for training course or even a job uh, jobs are not that difficult to get nowadays uh, so yeah they have to have something to do during the day and they need a safe place to live if their recovery is going to be successful it's interesting the way that's come right isn't it you know in the 70s you couldn't get a job and now it's more about you can't get somewhere to live that's right in the 70s you, could, you 70s you could get a flat you get a little private rental flat no problem you paid 100 pounds to the landlord as a deposit and you paid maybe 25 pounds a week for the rent uh, and you could stay there until you messed up and had a party and the landlord threw you out <laughs> but even if that happened you found another one <laughs> very very easily in those days you could get an apartment uh, but you couldn't get a job now you can get a job but you can't get an apartment <laughs> uh, you yeah, know. I heard somebody from Crosscare saying that even if somebody had an income of about 2,200 euro a week uh, a bigger a month yeah. uh, and they're paying out say 1,700 and yeah. rent at yeah. the moment like, I mean where does that leave them? No buffer at all. It leaves them in poverty. Yeah. In yeah. poverty, even though they have a good job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what caused the revolution in Russia. <laughs> that people were paying most of their wages to the owners of capital, to the assets, the owners of assets. And here you have people paying most of their wages to a landlord, leaving themselves in poverty. Uh, and that is, is a recipe for social revolution. Absolutely. Which, you know, we're seeing on the streets a bit at the moment with the yeah, the, process. Yeah. yeah. I mean, today almost anybody can become homeless. Uh, there are students who are homeless. Uh, the uh, families, an increasing number of families are becoming homeless. The majority of people becoming homeless today are being evicted from the private rented sector. Either because the rent has gone too high or the landlord says they're selling the house. So the majority of homeless people today don't have an addiction problem or a mental health problem. They simply have one one problem, they don't have enough money to be able to go out and get themselves alternative accommodation. And there's so little council housing to move into, they end up between the, uh, the cracks and end up in, in homelessness. So, and I think we need to change that perception of homelessness because as long as the public think that most homeless people have a drug or alcohol problem. Many will say, well, it's their own fault. Uh, they brought this on themselves, so why should we have too much sympathy for them? But the reality is, almost anybody can become homeless. There are teachers in Dublin who are effectively homeless. There are Gardaí sleeping in their cars because they can't afford to commute up and down. Uh, you have students who are homeless, students sleeping in their cars in, 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 in college grounds. Uh, and you have thousands of people who are sofa surfing and you have I don't know tens of thousands of uh, young men or women still living involuntarily with their parents because they can't afford to move out <laughs> so when you consider that broader canvas type of thing yeah. there's it's quite extraordinary you know I hadn't I hadn't really thought it through before I was talking to you but when I was thinking about talking to you and I was reading about you know, people on housing waiting lists are effectively homeless until they get the house. You know, 
a simple thing, but it just sort of doesn't occur to you in the same way. I think perhaps because of the way the media portray people who yeah. are homeless. Yeah, I always have a problem with that. If they do an article on, on homelessness, they'll always show you somebody sleeping in a sleeping bag in a, on a, mm-hmm. in a doorway. And there are plenty of those. And they're our priority. They're the ones we give priority to because they're the ones who are most difficult to help because uh, they have multiple needs. Uh, and the ones maybe that other people are reluct- more reluctant to help. So we prioritise people with uh, addiction or mental health problems. Uh, but knowing that they are in the minority of homeless, the homeless category. Uh, but the media always portray homelessness as somebody sleeping in a sleeping bag in a doorway. Oh, we I won't see. do that. We did an advert, we did a, a, a video on homelessness. Uh, it was sponsored by a, by a company. But the video was the keys to the door. And it showed somebody coming up to the door of their house in the pouring rain and they're searching their pocket they've discovered they've forgot they, they've lost the keys of their house what are they going to do or somebody who's lost the keys of their car uh, and then it ended with showing somebody in a, sitting in a cafe no keys to anything <laughs> and that's the homeless that's the, mm-hmm. the the reality of homelessness now for for many people uh, it's not addiction or mental health. <clears throat> so the people that your organisation is managing to house, you know, they're in the homes that you're able to give them for as long as they need them. Is that the case? We give them an apartment. Uh, they have it for life. Huh. Yeah, as long as they want it. Yeah. Now some may get uh, engaged to somebody else and maybe have a child and they want a bigger move apartment. On. They may mm-hmm. move out. But no, as long as they, it's 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 a home for life. Yeah, that's what we offer them. And, I mean, an indelicate question, perhaps, but you know, a useful mm-hmm. question. What happens? Do they pay rent or anything? They like do. That? Uh-huh. How does that work? Most of them would be on welfare. Okay. Um, so they get roughly, if you're a single person, you get roughly, sorry, 200 uh, euros a week. So they would pay, I think it's 47 euros a week for their for their hostel or for their apartment. Uh, and uh, yeah, they look after all the other bills and maintain themselves. Now we do have a support, support teams in place. So some people have multiple needs and those needs have to be addressed. Uh, and the old tradition was if you have an addiction or a mental health problem or you need help with your anger management go away solve your problems come back and we'll house you that never worked and it couldn't work how can you deal with your addiction problem if you're living in a hostel full of drug users how can you deal with your mental health problem if you're walking the streets all day long with nowhere to go and nothing to do so the current model the model we use is called housing first house people first and then help them to deal with their with their personal problems so we have support teams in place they're available 24 7 uh, so that if somebody who needs support uh, that the, the support team is available they can ring up and if the support team can help them over the phone great if they can't they'll call out to them at three o'clock in the morning whatever the support team might consist of an addiction counsellor and a social worker and a mental health nurse and uh, other personnel <clears throat> and the key to the key to success in housing people with multiple needs is the support team. If they don't have that, they're going to lose their uh, accommodation very quickly. 
So we put them in, and there's only two conditions. They don't have to address their addiction. They don't have to address their mental health if they don't want to. But we find most of them do. Once they have a stable, safe place to live, uh, we find people are become more interested in addressing their their, their personal issues. I but noticed too that with some of the projects that you're doing, like for example, you have projects I know going on here, close to home mm-hmm. here actually, uh, in Moy Ross and South Hill, and also in Malmö <coughs> Street, which for the city itself is wonderful, the regeneration of the city, three people coming to live in it, couldn't yeah. be better. But I was wondering about that. I think there was something about um, <coughs> the possibility of people who were at one, uh, hoping to benefit from the finished product actually been able to work on the site. And that has been a thread in our conversation that I've noticed. I used to be a career guidance person <laughs> myself years ago, so it's always stayed with me. But um, you know, the, the idea that people are given an employment or yeah. given an opportunity to, I suppose, be really be themselves yeah. or find themselves in a way is part of what yeah, the, there is a relationship with the school in Moyros, uh-huh. and school in Moyros helps to train people in whatever it is carpentry or welding or whatever it may be that and then they will be employed uh, on the on building the uh, the, the the houses uh, so yeah with that we would encourage that it gives people well it gives people a job it gives people Absolutely. a sense of uh, self-respect and dignity mm-hmm. uh, and a sense of ownership of the the properties if they're the ones moving into into that particular uh, property mm-hmm. yeah well, um, you know, it's it is wonderful work. It's badly needed work. When I hear these figures, like eleven thousand plus people yeah. that are now in a state of homelessness, one way and another, in the state, and three thousand plus of those people yeah, are children. And I suppose one question that we'd like to ask you, I'm not sure how to put it delicately, because I don't want to raise hairs or anything. But do you know the way we're now taking in and absorbing? on a compassionate basis, mm-hmm. all the people that are fleeing the war that's going on in Ukraine, and God bless them and everything. But there's beginning to be, at least, again, <coughs> we have to yeah, decide is, to re- rely is. on media reporting, but there's beginning to be a perception among Irish people, well, like, I mean, let's look after our own first. Yeah, I hear that all the time. And there is a growing sense of racism. Uh, but it's unnecessary. We can we can do both. We can accommodate. <coughs> you know, the minister uh, has uh, ordered five hundred modular homes, and I told him five hundred order five thousand. <laughs> now he has ordered five thousand, and they could be in place by the end of next year. There are twenty five thousand five hundred Airbnbs advertised in Ireland. Ah, mm-hmm. Now, to, to have an Airbnb, you have to register with the local authority. And in some cases, if you're renting it out for more than 30 days of the year, you have to have planning permission. vast majority of those 25,500 Airbnbs don't register and don't have planning permission. Because they might have to arguing, one thing or I'm arguing it should be illegal for them to advertise and for the Airbnb platforms to accept the advertisement if they are not registered. <coughs> That could bring at least 10,000 units back into residential use. Yeah, uh, during COVID, I think you had noticed that yeah, uh, one of the number had come back that's because right. of COVID. Yeah, that's right. They weren't 
going to tourists so yeah. local people were able to use them yeah and the landlords were out ringing us up <laughs> because they had an empty apartment uh-huh. no tourists and because of covid restrictions people weren't allowed to go and view it so they had so they were ringing us up saying do you have somebody we could <laughs> who could take it and it was a win-win for everybody we they knew we weren't going to recommend somebody was going to wreck it <laughs> uh, it was a win-win for everybody uh, yeah it was it was great so on the others everywhere you go there are empty pla- buildings are empty indeed. buildings yeah. thousands of them and they should be brought back into use as quickly as possible. And who should now, be doing that? Local the local authorities. authorities. Yeah. Now, some local authorities are better than others. Waterford uh, last year brought back, uh, I think, 45 of those empty buildings into use. But 16 local authorities brought none back into use, or some of them brought one back into use. Now, if every local authority did what Waterford are doing, uh, 30 something local authorities bringing back 40 to 50 uh, empty buildings every year you're adding another 1500 residential units every year to the to the stock so we could house the refugees we could house our own people if we uh, and i'm supportive of the current uh, minister i think some of his policies i am very supportive of he's done a u-turn of the previous on his predecessors his predecessors were fixated on getting the private sector to solve the housing crisis yes. <coughs> and we know now that has been a massive failure now he has done a u-turn and he has committed to providing nine thousand social houses new social houses every year i think that's great uh, i think that's the direction we should be going in but my criticism is that we're going we're way behind target there doesn't seem to be any sense of urgency or any sense of crisis in in addressing this problem as evidenced by the fact that 16 local authorities haven't bothered to bring a single unit back into into use uh, empty unit back into use that sense of crisis or urgency is missing and we need to do that so <clears throat> people ask me what do we need I say we need a minister for housing who's angry <laughs> who's yeah. angry enough to want to get things done <laughs> and would you see you know I mean I'm not too sure how the political system works really but would you see this nearly being of course you would probably see this but like a single issue on the agenda on the political agenda that housing should be the number one well, the government are worried. They know housing is, uh, <clears throat> and particularly with younger people, they see no prospect of ever owning a house. So they're uh, leaving us. They're leaving, or they're, are mm. they're, they're, they're angry, mm-hmm. uh, and they're the what they're going to vote, and they're going to vote Sinn Fein, <laughs> and the government know that. Uh, mm. yeah, so they they are worried, and they have two years at most to make a difference to the housing situation. I don't think they will in two years. Uh, as I say, I don't think the sense of urgency is there, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, it, it is the biggest issue. In Finland, they almost solved their homeless problem. They solved it in three ways. One, they, they built enough apartments to, uh, to house homeless people. But the other two uh, factors were, there was there was a, a huge commitment <clears throat> to the services were working together so the department of housing the health 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 services addiction services mental health services social welfare services all work closely together to address the issue <clears throat> 
Here we have a protocol that hospitals or prisons should not release people into homelessness, but they're doing it every day of the week. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, they just don't work together. So if somebody gets out of prison on a Friday, there's no wealth, they have no, haven't got a penny in their pocket. And the earliest they're going to get a penny is going to be the following Monday or Tuesday. So what do they do for the weekend? With not a penny in their pocket, maybe living on the street, you know, you're back into prison in no time. So we don't work together. It's getting, getting services, to, particularly statutory services, to work together is very, very difficult. And the other thing Finland did was the person, the decision maker stayed in the job for a long time. So they built up a passion and uh, an expertise in the area. Here you have a Minister for Housing, maybe in the job two or three years, then he's, there's a cabinet shuffle, somebody else comes in, hasn't got a clue, <laughs> it takes him two or three years to build up uh, a knowledge of the area, and then he's moved to somewhere else. Uh, so, yeah, we, we could do much better, we could do much better, uh, but there are too many obstacles there that are not being addressed. Well, you've given me a real picture today and our listeners, and thank you for that, of what's really going on behind the scenes, as it were. And, um, of course, one of the ways in which you're able to do the work and continue the work is through donation. Now, I know this isn't by any means a, a fundraising exercise, this chat, but um, if people would want to donate to you, how do they go about it? Well, we'd be very glad. We have to fundraise 12 million this year to keep our services going. We have a total budget this year of about 48 million. We'll get 36 million from the government. We're very grateful for that, but it's not enough. <laughs> uh, so we have to fundraise 12 million. So if people do want to donate, they could either uh, go onto our website, there's a, there's a place there to donate, uh, uh, or you could send in a cheque or whatever to our head office in, in Mountjoy Square in Dublin. Again, that's the addresses on our website. So if somebody does want to go onto the website. And I think the website is pmcvtrust.ie. It's pmvtrust.ie. But the easiest way, just Google my name and it'll bring you to the, to the website. Yeah, that's the easiest way to remember it. So, and thank you to in advance to anybody who does wish to... Uh, to donate. We appreciate it very much. Thank you very much for your time today.